Hello, this is Christopher Long, and you're listening to The Digital Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to cultivating the excellences of dialogue in a digital age. This is episode 69, and today I'm joined by Marina McCoy, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Boston College. Marina is a longtime guest of The Digital Dialogue, appearing previously on episode 6 on Attentive Listening, and episode 20 when we were in uh, Utah together doing a Sophocles conference. And it is a real pleasure to have Marina back on the Digital Dialogue to talk about um, a recent paper she gave at SPEP called Reimagining the Platonic Imagination. But before we get started uh, discussing that paper, I want to mention the recent appearance of Marina's second book, Wounded Heroes, Vulnerability as a Virtue in Greek Tragedy and Philosophy, which is published by Oxford University Press. And Marina, if I'm not mistaken, it is out and ready for uh, purchase and reading, right? Yes, it is. And um, as well as being available for purchase, there's an open access source that you can get at the UK site. So the book is also available free as a PDF. That's great to hear. I'm really, uh, I think you, you mentioned that to me over Facebook or uh, on Twitter or one of our social media sites, and uh, I was really excited to hear that. So I'm glad that Oxford is doing that, and uh, I look forward to, to, to reading it. And then maybe you can come back on the digital dialogue to uh, talk about that too. Sure. Great. Well, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you, and thanks for being a longtime supporter of the Digital Dialogue. We're moved into live video here, so we always it's always interesting to see how that plays itself out, um, but we've had some luck with it uh, before. So I think the best way to start maybe is for you to talk a little bit about what you're trying to do in the paper and sort of the, the basic contours of the paper itself, and then we'll get into a discussion, I guess, of the imagination and the Republic and, uh, and Platonic writing. Yeah, sounds good. So I've had a long-standing interest in the imagination, and especially in how that plays out in the Republic. Um, there's a kind of typical story that's been told, which is that Plato uh, places images at the very lowest part of the divided line, that images are inferior to other ways of thinking, um, and the imagination, presumably because of its close connection to poetry, which is also criticized in the Republic, somehow lacks some kind of philosophical substantiality to it. And um, that always seemed to me somewhat at odds with Platonic praxis. In other words, the idea that what Plato's doing often in writing the dialogues is, first of all, giving us images of people who are engaged in conversation. Uh, so that's the first thing. The dialogue itself requires that we use our imaginations. Right. And then second of all, that many of the descriptions of justice, the descriptions of the soul, are also posed in terms of images or even myths. So uh, I'm hoping my next book project will be somehow trying to make sense of those things, and particularly to give more credibility to the imagination. Um, I mean, briefly, I think what I want to argue, or at least I think I'm going to argue, is that the imagination actually constitutes how Socrates, as a character in this dialogue, develops theoretical visions of justice, and that what dialectic is in the Republic is the making and breaking of images that as we kind of move from one image to another, we're not simply taking up propositions that are rejected because they're wrong and then starting all over again, but we're trying to create visions of justice and then kind of look at the boundaries or edges of those visions and, and see what needs to be changed, what needs to be modified, and sometimes even break, fully breaking the image to come up with a new one. So, uh, so you're envisioning this project as primarily one that focuses on the Republic itself? Yes, I think so. Um, I've done a little bit of work on the Gorgias with this, actually, but um, and my past books have actually been pretty much theoretical in terms of um, 
uh, let me just um, being able to um, you know try to do different chapters and different types of uh, dialogues, but I was really taken with the idea of just sort of tracing this through the whole entire republic and not trying to uh, kind of do the far-ranging move across all the dialogues because right. it's not clear to me the images are functioning the same way across the dialogues. Yeah, so the, let's talk a little bit about the republic. So first of all, I mean, I, I was really appreciative of the beginning of the, um, the paper where you uh, distinguish between uh, Socrates as a character in the dialogue and how we experience Socrates, I mean that really resonates with the with my uh, distinction between the topology of, of Socratic politics, namely the focusing on what Socrates does with his interlocutors and the topography of what I call what I call Platonic politics and the sort of way Plato does in writing um, things with us as readers. But you focus less on us as readers and more on an imagined audience. Uh, and that audience is kind of um, is, is understood by you in the in the paper to be the you know um, ancient Greek Athenian audience and the kind of assumptions that they would have had uh, when they were experiencing the the dialogues in, in a kind of dramatic form. Yeah. So one of the interesting instances of this is Paul Marcus as a character. Um, you know, pretty rarely do people look at Paul Marcus and who he actually was as a insider and outsider to Athens. So for people who don't know, Polemarchus was the son of Cephalus, a famous medic, M-E-T-I-C, um, -E someone yeah. who was living outside of this uh, city in a sense because he was physically residing in the city but he didn't have rights as a citizen. And so uh, although he contributed tremendously to the military and to the political life of Athens, he in a sense still um, He's not fully residing within it, even though he's physically there. Uh, Paul Marcus himself is dragged off the streets when 30 tyrants take over and killed fairly brutally. And we have the account of his death by his brother um, in the uh, courtroom speech by Lysias against Eratosthenes. We find out you know, the details of that. So we know almost certainly that an Athenian audience would have heard um, and would have known of Lysias's uh, complaint against how his family was treated by the city. That seems like really important information for interpreting the Republic. Um, when Paul Marcus says that justice is helping your friends or harming your enemies, uh, there's something deeply problematic about that, right? Because he was harmed by his enemies, and yet we would hesitate to say that, that was a matter of justice. Right, right. So but how do you navigate then this uh, distinction between characters crafted by Plato in a dialogue and um, historical people. So, I mean, we have the, the problem of Socrates himself is, is exactly that, that question. So, um, I mean, when you bring in these historical facts uh, about characters, um, you're breaking that, in a way, you're breaking that uh, boundary between a dramatic character and a historical figure. Yeah, so um, I think you're right. Um, what you're implying there, I think, is right, which is that we can't simply take the historical figures and import them into the dialogue. And you're right, Socrates the, is the preeminent example of that. Uh, we don't want to say that the Platonic Socrates and the historical Socrates are identical. Uh, and we know that, for example, from the distinctions between, say, Xenophon's account of Socrates and Plato's own. Um, at the same time, I guess I want to say that we um, can 
can say that there's something important about who these historical figures are that informs how we we would interpret what Socrates, uh, what Plato was doing with a Socrates or doing with someone. So, for example, we do this with Socrates all the time, right? In the Gorgias, when Socrates um, is told by Calicles says to Socrates, you know, if you're ever brought before a courtroom, Socrates, your mouth will hang open and you won't have any idea what to say. Right. Now, we as readers of the dialogue all know, right, that in fact he was an incredibly adept and persuasive speaker, um, defending philosophy, not his own, you know, guilt or lack of guilt, but making up like profound encomium really to Socrates and to, to philosophy. So. Um, and there seems to be some basis for this, that this is historically what Socrates also did. So I think um, it's just maybe a matter of prudential judgment trying to say, okay, what can we, first of all, what is Plato the author doing? That's the first primary information. But insofar as there is some kind of uh, way of engaging with the, uh, you know, historical material in a way that helps to expand or elucidate what Plato's already doing, then we can make good use of it. Yeah, I think it would be helpful as you if you think about sort of laying out the the framing of the book to to come at that issue straight on and simply right. to say something like you know um, Plato chose these particular characters for specific reasons. Now, not that we can just do a one to one matching of you know Polemarchus the character in the Republic to Polemarchus the historical figure, but this name has these things associated with it, the best we can tell from the historical record are, are these things, and it, it makes some sense that Plato would be drawing on those. Now, exactly why he's drawing on those is, is part of what I think your point about um, imaginative interpretation is, right? Because we have to engage our own imaginative capacities in order to make a case for why we're going to take this this particular feature or historical fact about a person as salient for whatever reason. Yes, and actually, you know, I know something you've worked on has been the idea of critical distance in uh, philosophy, and um, it's definitely that's been influential in thinking about your work from, from my own, that um, there is something really important about how the dialogue functions as giving us critical distance, and so this is another way in which Plato, as the dialogue's author, gives us that critical distance, right? We're kind of moving um, both within looking at specific definitions, but also characters, between a kind of sympathetic engagement, you know, with what an author, what what a um, creator of a definition of justice in the dialogue is saying, and then sort of coming up against limits and saying, well, here's a problem with that, and that's what allows, I think, Platonic poetry to be different than Homeric poetry, is that the Homeric poetry is uh, not giving us that critical element. Uh, it kind of just invites us to enter into the world of the poet and stay there. And Socrates invites us into a world in which he himself is getting his interlocutors and Plato is getting us to move to a kind of critical distance to question constantly uh, and to think through questioning constantly. Yeah, so you have this um, nice um, formulation in the, in the paper about um, an engage, a kind of engaged response. And and um, and also, uh, I mean, the role of imagination in that. And maybe I could ask uh, uh, you to talk a little bit about that and, and to talk. Well, let, let let's stick with the engaged response and 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 the way um, the way Socrates provokes uh, uh, the imagination of the interlocutors, and then Plato thus invokes evokes ours. 
Yeah. All right. So um, let me first say something theoretical about that, which is the um, very idea of uh, which I think is something Andrea Nightingale, for example, has brought out in some of her work, is this idea of gazing or contemplating, right? So there's something really important in a number of Greek metaphors for knowledge that has to do with seeing something. Um, one of the problems with that metaphor is it's a somewhat passive. So one of the things that Nightingale talks about is the pilgrim who comes to see what is happening on the stage in front of him, say, in a Greek tragedy. Uh, it seems that there's something different happening in the Platonic dialogue because it's not simply a um, passive reception of something, but this kind of active, creative engagement with the world around us. Um, so in that sense, there's a kind of political element. Obviously, in the Republic, it's about justice, but there's a political element to philosophy insofar as we're trying to be engaged with other people about important issues in our city. And we can see that in particular in the Republic with how Socrates engages Cephalus or Polemarchus or Thrasymachus. You know, he uh, speaks to Cephalus actually in a fairly open way. He says to Cephalus, how is it to be an old man? You know, is it, is it as bad as they say? <laughs> and when Cephalus explains and gives his answer, uh, that turns into this discussion of justice. And I don't actually see uh, Socrates primarily as interested in cutting down Cephalus. I think rather he's trying to engage with him, genuinely think, you know, about, you know, what are the strengths and weaknesses of his definition of justice as giving back what is owed and truth-telling. Uh, and so what we see in Socrates' questions is sort of saying, okay, here's a framework that's primarily a mercantile framework about, you know, being fair in exchanges. What's problematic about that image? Is there something lacking? And, uh, and that's how we get to Paul and Marcus sort of trying to defend his father's view by saying justice is no, it's about helping your friends and harming your enemies. There's something more at work here. But uh, Socrates, you know, does this through giving us images. He says, well, what if your friend had a weapon and he was mad? Would you give it back to him then? Now, I found that a lot of my students often say that's a kind of almost silly example, right? It seems like such a tiny, narrow exception to Cephalus' definition. How can we really take that seriously as an argument? But, in fact, I think it's not really that Socrates is saying here's a, an exception to a universal that proves the universal proposition to be false, therefore we have to reject it. But rather, he's really trying to get us to think about Cephalus' definition. Um, is justice simply about returning what's owed? When we decide not to give weapons to a friend who's gone mad, you know, there's a lot more happening in our own reaction to our own response. What is that? So it's uh, a way of using the imagination to engage with how are we already as political actors? What are our everyday ordinary actions already telling us about the nature of justice and helping us to re-envision, in a sense, ourselves? Right. Well, I mean, I think one of the you really press that the, the the issue of wonder and what wonder means in this context, and I think it's really um, an excellent point you make because um, Socrates wondering about first of all at the beginning of the Republic what this um, what this festival is going to be uh, down in the Piraeus that he went to visit, and then when he encounters um, uh, Cephalus. Uh, wondering about what is what is it like to be to be old. Um, one thing that you mentioned in, in that uh, when you introduced the idea of wonder that struck me was um, the notion that that Socrates seems to delight in wonder. And I and and I think sometimes we uh, it, it, just because you put delight next to wonder in that context, <laughs> I started thinking about the fact that we we don't emphasize the idea of delighting. 
that as much as philosophers. And it does seem to me that Socrates just delights in it. He just delights in these conversations and in these and and in asking these questions and in and in creating these images. Yeah, I think that's right. And there's something else about wonder that I really um, I thought about wonder for a while, partly because actually one of my teachers, David Ruchnik, has a terrific article on the Theaetetus and wonder. Um, where he talks about wonder a little bit in that. But um, yeah, I think this element of delight is really important. I think also being interested in the other. So one of the things I say about wonder is that it, it's almost something on the verge of the ecstatic in the literal, literal sense of being taken outside of oneself. Right. Um, so we have that experience, say, in experiences of nature, right? We climb a mountain, go hiking, and find that there's something wondrous about the experience. And part of that wonder is that we're taken outside of our own limited self and into something bigger, you know, the, the view, the landscape. Uh, and there's, I think that philosophy ought to be like that. It's not always like that, but right. it ought to be. Right. And it can be, right? When we have these kinds of conversations, I think the kind of thing you're doing in digital dialogue, right? It's very engaging. And um, part of doing philosophy's conversation is that we get outside of our own little narrow worlds and into the world of somebody else. And that's what Plato's constantly doing in showing us how to practice and do philosophy. So there's two ways in which I think you you emphasize in the paper that he does this. Um, one, one I think we can associate with um, directly with Socrates, which is namely the practice of questioning. So the the nice uh, I, I thought you made a really nice point about you know the way that Socrates that that the the gesture and the activity of questioning is. Uh, is a kind of opening of the imagination and an invitation to wonder and to delight in that wonder. And so there, there's the whole practice of questioning. But then you also emphasize, I think, at the end of the paper, and this is maybe something more that kind of Plato does as author in terms of the crafting of the dialogue. Obviously, Plato saturates the whole thing. But in any case, uh, the issue of... of uh, of Socrates' relation to uh, non-citizens, to medics, as you brought up earlier in the, in the discussion here. And not only Socrates' relation, but the city of Athens' relation to, to medics. So that's also part, uh, I think, on your reading in this essay of this openness to the other. Right, and I think it, it's interesting because, again, um, there's an agonistic way of questioning that's opposed to wondering, right? So when we look at the sophists and we look at some versions of how philosophy is practiced today, even in our own world, you know, mm -hmm. questioning can be a way of actually just asserting myself and making sure I'm right and the other guy is wrong, or at least showing that you're wrong, you know? Right, right. <laughs> um, or, and so, and again, there's a reason for that, I guess, because there is something sometimes agonistic about Socrates with his interlocutors. I don't want to diminish that and say it's... Um, no part of Socrates' practice. I mean, he goes after Callicles pretty hard in the Gorgias um, and questions uh, hedonism there in a pretty difficult way. But the, the other side of questioning, I think the best side of questioning is saying that, you know, I, I'm limited and finite in what I know and what my words yet have captured about something like the nature of justice and can I really allow you to enter in? Um, you know, in the contemporary political landscape, we see the filibuster is sort of the opposition to that, right? There's the, right. uh, you know, we we seem to have a problem right now having the two parties talk across, uh, you know, differences, and really to listen in a way that is a kind of open, has an openness and receptivity with the other person is saying, right. simply imposing upon the other person. So, um, so the two extremes, I guess, would be something like that: the filibuster or silence. You know, Lysias is silent in the dialogue. 
And that's a really peculiar thing. He's listed as present in the characters traditionally, but he never says anything. And, um, you know, when we silence people politically, we're excluding them from a conversation, um, maybe because we don't wonder enough at what they say or what they would say. And it's a very powerless thing to be silenced. So, yeah. right, and so the medics are an, a really good example of this because they did not, at the time um, that the, dram the dramatic uh, part of the Republic was posed, have uh, substantial citizenship rights. And yet, here Socrates invites them to talk about justice in the city. You know, so you have these sort of two boundaries actually that are played with. One is the Piraeus, which is itself a port. So it's not, we're not here, you know, at the height of Athens. We're here down at the coastline, the place where exchange takes place between Athens and outsiders. And then we have Socrates basically starting philosophy with someone who is, again, at the edge or the boundary of the city. And what does that mean for us as philosophers to you know, keep in mind that philosophy needs to be practiced, not just say within like the narrow confines of the academy, you know, but how does it engage with those outside of it? Right, right. Well, yeah, that, I mean, that's, ob that's obviously something that I've been very... I was going to say, maybe you want to put a little plug for the public philosophy. Yeah, right, exactly. Which I think is a fantastic project that I just wholeheartedly support. Thank you so much. Well, we're going to need a lot. We're going to need a lot of help uh, with, from you and others who are willing to try to um, engage with that whole uh, endeavor. I think I'm excited about it, but it's it's kind of daunting. It was one of those things where we, as we were writing to Mellon for this grant, we thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if we did? And like, yeah, let's do this and let's add open peer review. And and then as it got closer, we said we might actually get this grant. Now we have to do this thing. <laughs> so, um, but it's exciting. Yeah. So, and and I do think. I mean, it, I do feel like the Public Philosophy Journal and um, and uh, the work that you know I'm trying to do with the digital dialogue and and with blogging and the work that I know you've been doing too with blogging is a way of opening up um, opening up these questions for a, a wider public. Um, first of all, by allowing people to just kind of listen in on them, but then also more substantively to engage in substantive dialogue as Socrates did with those he encountered in, um, in Athens. And I wonder, uh, going back to the whole issue of agoni the agonistic dimension of, of um, dialogue, even in Plato, I mean, I, I too have been criticized in terms of, um, you know, the, in my book manuscript and in some of the, uh, the papers that I've given for not giving enough credence to the agonistic side of Socrates, to the side of, uh, and of the dialogues in general. And um, uh, I think there's something not wrong about that, that critique, but on the other hand, I feel that we have, um, that, that philosophy in general has overemphasized the agonistic so much that um, it has kind of, it has filtered into, the, into our habits of interacting to such a degree that we can't um, think of other ways of interacting. Now, I think that, that that's changing in, in, to some degree now, but, but, um, but I do worry on the other side that, okay, well, there is something positive about, or, or, or something good about, you know, the, con the real conflict, real genuine disagreement, especially when it's, when it's about something significant and not falling into ad hominem attacks. Yeah, and I think with Socrates, it depends on his interlocutor so much, right? So with someone like Theotetus, who seems to me, in my reading of Theotetus, genuinely engaged with trying to understand the topic that they're discussing in that dialogue, 
there's less need to be agonistic. And there is a lot of conflict, that's conflict over positions, right? So they kind of take a development of a Pythagorean view and say, you know, what's problematic with this position? Let's grapple with that for a while. Then you have someone like Mino or Callicles who seem mm -hmm. to be rather arrogant people. And the only way Socrates seems to be able to break through to them um, or to Melitus or some of the people who take him to court is, is through a more agonistic approach because they're so full of uh, total self-assurance that their own view is right and nobody else matters. However, I really, really wonder if that's what Plato's doing. You know, in other words, Socrates does that, but is there something different about how Plato uses dialogue than Socratic questioning? I mean, one of the things that was problematic maybe about Socrates, the historical Socrates, is maybe he, he did too much go in the direction of simply, you know, kind of chiding people to try to get to what he saw as problematic in their views. And not all of his interlocutors, many of them are not changed by it, you know? Right. Uh, Alcibiades, Mino, probably many others. And so maybe there's some about the multivocity of the voices in a platonic dialogue that goes beyond what Socrates himself did with the sort of one-on-one -on -one questioning. Yeah, I mean, and that would fit with this notion that um, uh, that is written in the letters that that there's no writing of Plato, but the, what is called the writing of Plato are the are the things. Uh, Socrates said, and and it's a Socrates made beautiful and new, right? So that it's not some, it, it's not a historical depiction of Socrates. It is a an ideal, uh, in a certain way, a flawed ideal, as I'm sure uh, Socrates himself as a person was, but um, one that does, I think, in a way, give you more. Um, uh, Gives you, gives you a, a, a Socrates who's different with different people, and I think that's one of the things that comes out. I mean, I think you know, you've also talked about that with relation to the Gorgias too, that he's different with Paulus than he is with with Gorgias than he is um, with Callicles. Yeah, and I think this is actually why the imagination is so important um, philosophically, because if our vision of philosophy is that we're trying to give correct propositional statements about the nature of reality, then the Vlastos picture that dominated for a very long time, that you know, the goal would be to see is if for any proposition P is there some kind of other proposition Q that is incompatible with P such that we have to reject P. Um, that vision of philosophy does kind of require an, agonist, an agonistic stance, right? Because then the goal is to say that whatever is true is that which is not defeated. Um, so that is, uh, I think, something Socrates says uh, at some point in the in the Gorgias. But um, the Imagination is a different kind of approach, I guess, to philosophy because if you're understanding these definitions or explanations or accounts of what constitutes justice, say in the Republic, in terms of images, then there's a chance for those images to um, say new images to incorporate old images. There's a possibility of reframing things. Uh, I, one of the advantages of the imagination is that it actually, I think, allows us to be more receptive. So one thing I say in the paper is that it, because it's integrative of an affective element of our experience with an intellectual element, it softens the edges a little bit of our hard lines about our intellectual claims. So we can allow something new to enter in because there's a kind of reframing or reconceptualization of something um, in a way that we hadn't thought of before but that resonates with us. It resonates with us as, you know, whole human beings, not just as intellects. 
Well, I mean, let me push you a little bit on that because there was a, a moment in the early on in the paper where you talked about restore the imagination to a kind of a place of dignity in relation <laughs> to the whole question of uh, in the relation to the whole question of reason. And and it, is it unfair to suggest that you're that you still that that operating in there is this idea that reason still has a kind of privileged place, or or is the is the claim really that? that um, we need to just integrate the uh, conception of the imagination into reason itself. Yeah, I think I want to say the latter, that uh, imagination is a constitutive part of reason. Um, I mean, I think there are these two polarities, actually, right? So on the one hand, we don't want to just trust our images immediately or take any particular image to be what is true, say, of justice. And that's actually a very common human limit, right? We have an image. And often we have even, say, in State of the Union addresses, like particular people, right? We'll, we'll trot out our favorite exemplar of our own political <laughs> position and point him in the audience and say, hey, here's the guy who shows us what justice is. That's right. Um, and so there is a real danger, actually, with an image somehow taking over a kind of more comprehensive vision of justice. Um, I guess because the, that side has been emphasized so long in Platonic scholarship, I'm also interested in the other side of this, which is, how can the imagination kind of move to help us rethink things? And the cave image is, is interesting. Actually, all those accounts of metaphysics in the middle books, the Republic, are images, right? So we have right. the form of the good is like the sun. The cave is an image. The divided line is itself an image. It's a mathematical image, but it's not simply an account. It's an image about images um, and other ways of thinking. So why are those so powerful in helping us to leave behind a kind of pre-philosophical vision, you know, to, to look at a, a very different platonic way of seeing the world. Well, he does it with images. So, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, I haven't uh, written this book yet, <laughs> so this is the first paper on it, but I guess I'm interested in, in and I guess, seeing how that question plays out, you know, how, well, how is yeah. it related to reason, and, and are there, I mean, surely there are elements of reason that are not um, beholden to images, but it does seem like, as Aristotle says, most thinking is is imaginal. Right. Well, and I think if you, I mean, you gesture to it in, in this in this paper, but I think as you try to flesh it out in detail, going through the Republic and seeing the dialectical way in which Socrates responds to the different visions of justice or the different articulations of what justice is with images. Um, and then what happens? I mean, you, you know, you don't cash that all out in this. Obviously, you've got a short paper right. that you're doing. Um, but I can, I, I can imagine the, the manner in which it would play out where, um, you know, a, a claim about justice is made, and then Socrates says, as, you, as your example of the, um, the uh, person with a, the mad person with a weapon makes clear, um, that that's kind of how he says. Well, you know, look, check this out. What about this? How does this fit into it? And then that drives the conversation forward. I mean, I think you're exactly right to to, to hold back the idea that well, okay, there's certain things Socrates says about images and about poetry in the Republic that um, can too easily be skewed as Plato's view about it, and without paying attention to the way the the dialogue itself unfolds. Yeah, yeah. So I think that is my hope to kind of trace out how this actually happens over the whole of the Republic. And again, haven't done that particular work yet. But my inclination is to say, having taught it, you know, several times um, to graduate students, teaching it again this spring. So hopefully that'll help along the writing project. Um, 
you know, how is it that we see the imagination function and, you know, both its limits as well as its strengths as it plays itself out through Socratic dialectics. But I want to say I think dialectic relies upon it. Um, yeah. And that, that upward motion of the dialectic that Socrates says far too little about in the middle books, right, when Glaucon just says, yes, I know what you mean, Socrates, and the rest of us are still wondering, um, that that may very well have to do with this movement of the imagination and various imagined possibilities. Right, right, yeah. Um, so then that would be uh, that would be the longer road to which Socrates gestures to. It would involve that. I mean, I, I also think a, a couple of other things I wanted to ask you about. I mean, well, one thing to to note is the kinds of images that Socrates uses with the specific people he's talking to. So one of the things that has uh, struck me about the Republic, and I tried to put it into this essay on the uh, politics of music in, in the Republic, is the way Glaucon becomes the central figure because he's both geometrical and erotic, mm -hmm. and, and therefore all of the most important you know, images of the text are spun out in, um, in conversation specifically with Glaucon as opposed to Adamantus or Cephalus or Polemarchus or or um, or anyone else. So the 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 issue. One of the issues we'll be interested to see how it plays out on your reading would be okay. What kinds of images does he use with specific individuals? Because I I'm imagining that Socrates uses different images with different people, just as just in the same way that he's different. Um, he's he he is himself different with different individuals because he's trying to find out what will move them to think of something different, think in a different way, imagine a different possibility, open up new possibilities for them. Yeah, that's great. I actually would love to read that article of yours. So I'll send, it to <laughs> send me you. a copy because I think that, that seems right to me. And um, yeah, Glaucon is described as being a very erotic man, right? And Socrates says, you know, there are, um, that he loves, uh, uh, all different kinds of people, and um, I think wine is mentioned, right. and honor, and the poetry that's been written to Glaucon. Honor is really important. You know that does guide a lot of the conversation of the Republic. And yeah, he uses, for example, with him the the images of breeding uh, horses and and all of that. Um, so um, I mean, I think this would also probably go to your point about what historical facts we might be able to draw in to the dialogue, or Plato's inviting us to draw into the dialogue by um, thinking about the kind of images that Socrates is evoking with, with each individual. Yeah, I wish we knew more about Glaucon and Adamantus, because um, I think Deborah Niels' book basically doesn't, says that we don't know that much. I assume a lot of people in Athens would have known, because these are Plato's brothers, right? So um, clearly his cohorts would have known probably a lot about these guys, and we don't really know as much ourselves, so that, that's unfortunate. Uh, maybe it'll be a lost manuscript <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, right. well, but I mean, it, that does also bring up an, another interesting question, which is um, uh, the the space between us and the and the original audience for these texts. And um, one of the things that I tried to emphasize a little bit in the in the, my book on Platonic and Socratic politics is that Plato's, what, what writing allows Plato to do is to talk um, intergenerationally or to address multiple generations um, 
whether or not, you know, to what degree he intentionally did this is, is I think, beside the point, but writing allows that to happen. Um, new possibilities open because of that, but other things, as you're saying, are closed off. The full context and texture of what a Glaucon was to the, to the Athenians then. Yeah, that's a great point. I love that point in your book, actually. It's a great book. Um, oh, so, but the, uh, yeah, so there's two sides, right? Because on the one hand, so for example, the very criticism of democracy in the Republic, right, take place in the context of a pure democracy. So there, he's not criticizing representative democracy. Here we have a democracy where many offices were filled by lottery. You know, if you don't know that, you're going to have a hard time seeing how some of the kinds of criticisms about democracy might not apply to all forms of democratic government, you know. Right. Um, so that's an important kind of difference maybe between us as an audience, uh, typical, you know, reader. But I think you're right that there's something important and actually, you know, this is one of the strengths of reading people from outside of your own time is that it makes you reconfigure your categories entirely differently. Um, like going back and reading people who don't think the government is a social contract is incredibly important because it's just so much part of our own culture and way of thinking yeah. that we assume, of course, government is a social contract, but it, it hasn't always been thought of that way. So when we read the Republic, say, in one of my undergraduate courses, I really encourage students to think about, you know, what does it mean to build up a city? What do we need to have in our city? And we go through and list what Socrates includes as necessary components of the city, and then uh, afterward, I pretty much, you know, say, well, what does he leave out? And I think that, you know, so we need to have that kind of critical engagement on both sides. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want to give a plug here in that regard to uh, Sarah Brill's book on Plato and the Limits of, yes. of Human Life, because I think she does a great job of, uh, of, of, of demonstrating how uh, for, um, uh, for an ancient Greek um, person, the city was intimately wrapped up in what it was to be an individual. So that the, the, the difference between, I mean, we just don't have then this the notion of an, an atomic individual that could enter into a contract. You know, the city is an ex in a certain sense an extension of the soul in a way. And, yeah, uh, I think she does. a perfect book of hers, and and, and uh, just really made me think differently about individuals in Plato. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll be I'll, I'll be having her on uh, one a, a digital dialogue coming up soon. I think I. Uh, Good, I'll tune in. Exactly. It'll be great. Well, uh, this has been great. I really appreciate your uh, coming on to the digital dialogue again, and uh, I'm looking forward to one on um, your book on. Um, the uh, on vulnerability. I can't wait to read that, and maybe uh, after I do, we'll we'll have another digital dialogue. Sounds good. Thank you for having me, Chris. Have a great, great. day. This has been the digital dialogue. The digital dialogue is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share and share alike license. You can find all the episodes of the digital dialogue on www.cplong.org, where you're invited to listen and leave comments and engage with other listeners. The Digital Dialogue also has a Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash digital dialogue. This has been The Digital Dialogue.